Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that used to be up to speed with Formula One, Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton, coming to you on a Thursday of what is a very, very busy week and neither of us feel particularly prepared to talk about Formula One, but we're going to give it the old college try, but I'm just complaining. My friend, how are you tonight? You got a big smile. You've been busy today, man. Holy smokes. Have you had yeah, a chance to Yeah, what a crazy day. Air? Yeah, barely. Yeah. So had a fantastic interview this morning at 6 a.m. with Megan Gilks, who is a Canadian driver. She is a aeronautical engineer. She's going to be going to work for Aston Martin this fall. We did a fantastic interview. And oh, by the way, she's the youngest ever race winner in the W Series. So that was fantastic. Just finished off an interview a couple minutes ago with Magnus Greaves, who of course is the founder and publisher and editor of Race Weekend magazine. I hesitate to call it a magazine. It's more of a publication slash hybrid book, but hoping to drop that uh, next week. So lots going on. And on top of it, and I forgot to tell you about this before the podcast, my whole house has COVID again. So fortunately, <laughs> we're all vaccinated, but my wife came downstairs a couple of days ago and she wasn't feeling well and she's got the test and like, we got it again. So we're locked in the house. <laughs> we're locked in the house for a, another week my friend it's got us again oh, again dear. the good thing my son's he's he's under the weather but he's going to be okay and my wife is uh definitely under the weather but she's uh grinding it out but fortunately we both work from home right now so uh it's gonna yeah. be okay so well geez the, i guess what, what are we at now the sixth wave seventh eighth wave I, i've completely lost track but yeah sorry to hear about that buddy but Wow, why, why don't we talk about something maybe a little bit more more cheerful? Should we talk about a little bit uh, about some Formula One? Well, I know. Let, let's since it's been like a crazy week, why don't we kind of like ease into it? We'll, we'll go for the low hanging fruits. We'll, we'll kind of find. Our I'm not prepared of- to talk any F1, so we can talk NBA playoffs. We can <laughs> talk Canadian politics. Let's talk about C-SPAN. Anything but F1 today. Okay, well, we could talk about Justin Trudeau. We could talk about the conservative leadership raised and Pierre Polyev. You know, is he legit? Is it going to be yeah. Jean? Oh, I'm not gonna... <laughs> no, let, let's just cut that off right there. We could talk politics uh, offline. I know. Why don't we just go over the driver's standings uh, and we'll ease into it nice and slow because it has been almost two weeks since the last race in Australia. We've got Imola coming up this weekend. Love the fact that we're going back to Italy. Love the fact that we're going back to Imola. It's been pretty enjoyable the last couple of years. And I'm glad to see that they're sticking around that this it wasn't kind of like a one and done kind of thing just uh, filling in uh, during the, the the early days of the the pandemic anyways after three races charles leclerc on top for ferrari 71 points who is not quite a country mile but getting there leading george russell of uh, Mercedes, who has 37 points. Carlos Sainz, the second Ferrari driver, 33 points. Sergio Perez, the first of the two Red Bull drivers, has 30 points. Lewis Hamilton, 28 points. And then Max Verstappen, the reigning world champ, 25 points after three races. 
And he's obviously going to want to kickstart that season pretty soon, or this season pretty soon. Now moving over the constructor standings, Ferrari on top, 104 points, ahead of uh, Mercedes in second place with 65 points, Red Bull 55 points, McLaren with 24, and Alpine with 22 points after three races. My goodness, it feels funny. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's been three weeks since the, or sorry, two weeks since the last uh, Grand Prix, but very, very... uh, excited to get back to racing but we're going to talk about uh, that in due course but there's a couple of uh, well more than a couple several interesting stories floating around there this week and the first of which is sir lewis hamilton and sarita williams are committing a heck of a lot of money in uh, a bid to be the new owners of Chelsea Football Club after Roman Abramovich, who is a Russian oligarch. Isn't it funny when it comes to like Russians who have a lot of money, they're oligarchs, whereas in the West, they're just billionaires. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> I, I don't know what the difference is. I, maybe I have to go and check out the the, the definition. There, there's got to be something important that I'm missing here. Anyways, Abramovich left. Uh, you know, he no longer has control of the club. It's being run by the Supporters Trust or Foundation or something like that which is something that we don't see typically in North American sports because you know we we often hear about the, the the term franchise I mean which basically is what it is when it comes to like the NFL NBA NHL etc but uh, th- this is an interesting uh, do you have um do you have a little bit more details you can share with us yeah I think this is an interesting news story Serena Lewis Hamilton joining a major bid to buy a significant stake in the Premier League club Chelsea. And again, I'm probably not the right person to talk about whether this is a particularly successful club. I think it is. Keep me honest here. Chelsea's pretty prominent in the British or the English Premier League. Yes, they are. They're one of the the, the London clubs. They, you know, I guess you can. I, I guess there's the the opportunity to really criticize. Uh, Abramovich and maybe be suspect or be suspicious about where his money came from. But the one thing that you you can't deny is the the success that they've had as a club when he was the uh, the owner there now, because they'd always been a club that was good to win maybe the occasional trophy here or there. But after Abramovich uh, took ownership. This what must be what 15, 20 years ago. It's, he's been around for quite a while. I mean, he took them to levels that uh, that have never really been seen before, and or at least for that club. So it, it was a major, major thing. And the fact that uh, he stepped aside, maybe he saw the. I guess the 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 writing was in the was was there for him, and just decided. Well, you know, considering how. Russians with a, a lot of money and all their assets are being frozen. Maybe he saw what was coming, just uh, decided maybe it's just time to move on. So I, I can't really speak to that part. But yeah, they've been a pretty successful club. I, I'm not really too sure. I, I'm I, I don't really know what Lewis's or where his allegiances lie. When it it's comes Arsenal, to, to it is. I I, I thought he was I did Arsenal, look it up. It's Arsenal. Yeah. So, which is another London club, and so that's kind of interesting that he would be considering a bid to become an owner of, <laughs> of one of the rivals, teams, one of rivals, right? But uh, he must have his his reasons to do so. But it's a fascinating story, nonetheless. A story in Sports Illustrated, another story at SkySports.com indicates that both he and Serena are looking at investing upwards of ten million pounds each into the bid. Now, that's not a significant amount of money, given the fact that the transaction price of this team is expected to be in the billions, the multi-billion dollars. It's going to be a very significant transaction and possibly the richest transaction ever for an English Premier League team. And just to kind of back up that comment that you talked about 
kind of recent success. I think since his current tenure, Abramovich, I'm looking at the tables right now, 0405, they finished first in the English Premier League title. 06, they finished first. They finished first again in 10, again in 15, again in 17. Yeah. So they've had a tremendous amount of success in, in a table and in a league that is top heavy with some exceptionally rich teams, whether it's Man City or Manchester United or Arsenal, there are some major heavyweights there. So to your point, they've been very, very, very successful, but it's also really great to see somebody like Serena or to see somebody like Lewis or both of them uh, Mm -hmm. put their money forward to buy a stake in a team like this, because I think underrepresented groups like they represent deserve and need to have representation when it comes to the ownership of these these clubs. I think it's good for the community. I think it's good for the fans. Um, and I think it's good for the supporters. So excited to see, and hopefully this bid moves forward, even though it's a little bit odd that, as we just discussed, Lewis, a, a diehard Arsenal fan, is going to be a potentially a part owner of, of Chelsea. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, too, is, I mean, there there is a connection between Chelsea and Formula One because they were sponsors of Sauber for many years and they had their logo on the side of the, uh, the, the, right. the Sauber airbox. So uh, I, I don't think that they're still there. I guess they, they've... I, they must be gone by now, but they did have like the the, the Chelsea Football Club logo on there. It looked, uh, looked uh, pretty cool. But yeah, that's an interesting... Excuse me, an interesting story. Okay, let's move on to the next one. And this one's kind of cool because usually when it comes to the news cycle, being on the west coast of North America, we're what, eight to 10 hours out of sync with the European news cycle. So usually what happens, we're basically half a day behind. So when we sit down, record these shows on a Thursday night, usually everything (laughs) comes out literally the moment after we, we publish this thing because it's usually sort of early to mid morning in the UK. And then the news of the day is usually starting to break about that time. It's, you know, it's not quite coffee. It's that time between breakfast and coffee time in the morning. And uh, not quite this time, but this is regarding a fellow that we've been talking about quite a bit over the past uh, couple of weeks. That's Carlos Sainz, now confirmed to be staying at Ferrari for another two years until 2024. We had a long discussion about Carlos the last uh, couple of shows. because The last couple, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, uh, first of all, we made some comments and we, I guess we kind of doubled down on those and then we had to clarify <laughs> them. So, I mean, basically, you know, let's put it this way. I mean, great, it's great news for Carlos. I think it's a good move for Ferrari. They got a really solid driver pairing, a pretty young driver pairing, obviously. Um, but but I like this one a lot. And I think that Carlos, for me, has the talent to be a, a driver for Ferrari. I think he's going to do a good job for them. To, to maybe summarize my comments that I wouldn't say got us in, 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 into deep water, but to maybe sum up the comments I said before that, yeah, he's good enough to be at Ferrari, but to me, he still has something to prove to be the number one at Ferrari because that delta between himself and Charles at the moment f- through the first couple of races has just been too big. I mean, obviously he had some issues in Australia. <laughs> he didn't really make it more than a couple of laps, but I say to Charles, hey, or, or sorry, to, to, to Carlos, if you think you can beat Charles and you can be the number one guy at Ferrari, bring it you know if you think you can do it let's see what you got my friend but i think it's a great move for for ferrari and i really hope it works out for both of them as i'm constantly criticized for being i'm i'm obviously a big fan of the way that mercedes runs their business but one of the things that i really disliked about the better part of the last 5 years with that team is the fact that they frequently just strung 
Valtteri Bottas along on these one-year deals. 17 was a one-year yeah. deal and yeah. 18 yeah. and 19 and 20 and 21. And unfortunately, what that does in the world of Formula One, especially given how intense the press can be, is it creates this whirlpool of speculation and noise and distraction. And I didn't like that in the Mercedes world. And I, I think it was a particularly problematic in 20 and again in 21 as people were speculating about the future of George Russell. I think this is is good for Ferrari because one, I'm not necessarily certain if there's a slam dunk alternative on the grid today. And Ferrari, with the exception of Charles Leclerc, never signs a driver that has less than four or five years of experience. And they've got two very yep. capable drivers right now. So why not commit to why not commit to one of them by giving him a two-year deal? I mean, we already know Charles Leclerc is in the midst of a very, very I shouldn't say rich because it's a very team friendly, but a pretty secure three-year deal, which is a little bit unusual in the world of Formula One. But I'm happy for Carlos Sainz because I think it helps provide a little bit of peace of mind. And I think it will help to help to reduce a lot of the noise and speculation and distraction that comes with being in a contract year in North America. When we say contract year, we typically mean a player is in the last year of his or her contract. And of course, mm-hmm. rumors start swirling about what's going to happen in free agency. Well, in the world of Formula One, there is no free agency. You can sign a new contract contract or basically be removed from your existing contract at any time because there's no collective bargaining agreement to protect the drivers themselves. So I think this is good and I think it will buy buy Ferrari a period of stability for the next couple of years when they should really be entering their prime. And you've been talking about this and I've been talking about this for three weeks now that this is a team that could very much contend for a championship now, this year. And the reality is if they can compete this year, what's to say they can't compete for the next two years? So why not remove that noise and that distraction and commit to somebody that you're obviously confident yes. enough to bring yep. over from from a different team? So I think this is a good move. And I think, unfortunately, it comes in the shadow of a really unfortunate weekend in Australia. But I think Australia should be and will hopefully be quickly forgotten as the championship gets underway once again, I think the noise and maybe some of the some of the fervor that was brewed up on the internet the last couple of days was it was reported, mm-hmm. at least in some publications, that there was a disconnect between Carlos and Ferrari and that Carlos was demanding a two-year agreement and Ferrari was only teeing up a one-year deal because they wanted to have the flexibility of considering a different driver for 2024 if they didn't like his 2023 performance. Ultimately, we can't verify whether that was the case or not. What we do know is he was offered a two-year contract and he put his name to paper. You know, a couple of things there. Like, I love the point that you made that it's just that that distraction and noise out of the way because now they can just focus on what they they need to do. Because let's be fair. I mean, I I think that when, when I say that for me, it's an open question whether or not Carlos has what it takes to be the number one at Ferrari. I, I think where I think we can all agree is that tandem of Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz gives them a very lethal one-two punch. I mean, look at the amount of points that these guys have racked up over the course of three races. I mean, Ferrari's already into triple digits into the Constructors Championship, and they're not quite double the points ahead of Mercedes, who have obviously struggled through for, through the first three races, but they've got a you know substantial gap between them. Now, the, the one thing that I like about it is the fact is 
that they're rewarding Carlos for what he's he's put in so far. I mean, he's committed to the cause. I think he had a very good season in general last year in 2021. I think that maybe what he did kind of flew under the radar a little bit because they didn't really have too many highlight performances right i mean it it was it was lewis it was max it was red bull mercedes all season long and there were some feel good stories here and there obviously the mclaren winning at monza Esteban Alcon winning in Hungary. I mean, there, there were some other stories, but they were almost footnotes to the season in general, because we'll all go back in years, years to come. We'll look back at 21 and say that was a Lewis and Max, uh, you know, big epic battle between the two. But quietly, Ferrari's gotten everything in order. They've built a good car, obviously, for, for 2022, at least what we've seen through the first uh, three races. But also what I like, and this kind of plays into the comment that you made about uh, Valtteri Bottas getting that rolling one-year deal, it always kind of bugged me. And here was a guy who came in after Rosberg retired in 16. He came in and did everything they needed him to do. And I think it was quite the slip that Toto Wolf made in Russia one year when he said something to the the, the famous wingman comment, right? Right. That and you know, I, I think that you know that that ruffled Val- Valtteri's feathers a little bit. I mean, it, it had to irk him because Toto's quite quickly he's backtracking and walking back those comments not really you know meaning in that that way i mean the thing was he was the perfect guy to be there he was quick but not quite quick enough to push lewis all the time he wasn't going to be there to take the championship away from lewis or really be in the position to push him for a you know or fight him for a championship in the way that say nico rosberg was and he was going to win some some championships. And I think that's why I was a little bit cynical about it at a time when, he, you know, Valdre would say, well, maybe this will be my cheer- year that I can challenge for the championship. I'm kind of like parsing and paraphrasing here, of course. But it was just never really going to happen unless Lewis had an uncharacteristic offseason. But the thing is, he did everything. I mean, how many Constructors Championships did he help contribute to? A half dozen, right? From from 2016 to 2021, he delivered the goods. He won a bunch of races in between, and he had some great drives for them. And then finally, that one-year rolling contract kind of you know, expired and he's off at uh, Alfa Romeo now. He's had a couple of good races to start the season, despite uh, some mechanical gremlins uh, getting in the way. And I just didn't want to see that happen to Carlos Sainz because to me, he's kind of been in, in a funny place, like never really, he's been with some good teams, but then all of a sudden he gets to go to Ferrari and it's a year where they don't obviously have a good car. Charles has kind of come in. He's really established himself as the number one guy. And, and that's why I say, you know, Carlos, if you want to be the number one guy, prove it to us. They've obviously got a good car and more to your point, they can win a championship this year. I think that what we've seen through the first three races of the season, the car is fast. It's reliable. Obviously, there were some issues with Carlos's car in in Australia, but it is, to me, clearly the car to beat this year. And for me, if they're not in the conversation for one of those two championships at at the end of the year, then obviously something had to go off the rails because they look so good and they're so quick right now. The question, though, my friend, is whether Ferrari wants him to be a number one driver or whether they would mm. prefer that he kind of assumes that mantle or assumes the role of unofficial, unofficial uh, 
wingmen, as you just described Bottas being. Yeah. The, the other consideration here too is that this is putting a little bit more of a damper on the upcoming silly season. So we now know Charles Leclerc is under contract till 2026. We're going to see signs now under contract through 24. Obviously, Verstappen's got a long-term deal. Lando's got a long-term deal. Uh, Lewis Hamilton's under contract for 23. George Russell's under contract for 23. So one of the outliers at this point, one of those few folks that are kind of amongst the upper echelon of drivers amongst the top three or four teams is Sergio Perez. He's out Mm -hmm. of contract at the end of this year. So now he's probably going to be coming more into focus in terms of media speculation and and noise and, and distraction because, hey, Carlos is signed. He's put his pen to paper. That deal is done. He's got two years. What's Red Bull going to do for Sergio Perez? And I think that's really going to be up to Sergio Perez now and how he performs over the coming half season ahead of us. Yeah. Hey, before we go into our first break, Mark, I want to just kind of stick with the Ferrari theme. Last week, we had some technical issues and I wanted to play that Sebastian Vettel clip. So I got it keyed up now. And this is angry. You've got to remember the context. What was the context for it? So this was going back and this went back further than I thought. This goes back to Mexico 2016. I actually thought it was Mexico 2018. So this was basically when he got behind Max Verstappen and Max being Max was making it very difficult for Seb to to get by. And he's complaining that, you know, Max is doing Max-like things. And instead of uh, giving him the opportunity to pass him fairly, he's pushing him backwards into the track and, and he's being challenged by uh, Ricardo. So he's basically in the Red Bull sandwich. But uh, he just uh, really erupts afterwards. Ultimately, nothing came of it because uh, Seb uh, apologized afterwards. But uh, have a listen to this one. Th- this one, if you have guys haven't heard this before, I mean, Sebastian, usually a p- pretty laid back and uh, relaxed guy, but he does have an edge. So check this out. He's a That's what he is. I mean, am I the only one? Or are you not seeing what I'm seeing? He's just backing me up into Richard. Charlie said that Charlie said Yeah, you know what? Here's the message for Charlie. Oh, honestly. Oh. I mean, honestly, I'm going to hit someone. I think I have a puncture. Real left. But tires are fine. Tires are fine. He has to give me the position. End of the story. Charlie said that Charlie said Yeah, you know what? Here's the message for Charlie. Oh, honestly. Sebastian, Sebastian, calm down. Calm down. They they are under investigation. I know that is not fair, but calm down. Put your head down and then we talk afterwards. Okay, could be more soon. My friend. My friend, that is the Sebastian Vettel. And the reason that we tried to play this last week is we'd made the comment yep. or I'd made a comment about the fact that I'm not seeing the edge and the anger yep. and the frustration that I want out of Sebastian Vettel. He just, he seemed, he seems resigned to his role on a backmarker team right now. And that infuriated me, but this is the emotion and the passion and the fury that I want to hear from Sebastian Vettel when he's on track. And hopefully that can be reignited and maybe it's going to take some improvements to that car and some upgrades, but that's what I want to hear out of Sebastian Vettel. And that was the clip that we tried to play for you last week to illustrate my point. Exactly. Okay, guys, uh, time for a very, uh, very quick break. We'll come back on the flip side. Still plenty more things to talk about. So we'll be back after a short break for these. 
passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And Mark, where do we want to take it now? Oh, well, we're going to kind of stick with the Ferrari theme here, or unless you've got well, something. Well, first, else. first, a couple of, of important How, kind of laundry and- items that we didn't cover off the top that I committed to doing. So a couple of things before we get going and before yep. we forget, I did want to give everyone a fantasy update. So we are now three races in to the 2022 fantasy league and we've got some people that are starting to pull away from the rest of the field i am not one of them and that's likely (laughs) because i have both lance stroll and nicholas latifi on my team but the top 10 drivers so far the top 10 competitors so far we have sean b from salt lake city at 736 points we have gabriel h with 733 jesse h from canada with 728 points britain h with 727 points then we have ruben j and jesse h again with 719 points we have troy k with 705 points we have uh for Kintoro with 705 points arter p with 703 points and then finally rounding out the top 10 somebody else from canada once again edward jason s with 698 points i'm desperately hoping the Canadians can find their way into the points so I can salvage my season. But I do have Charles Leclerc. I do have Lando Norris. I have Sergio Perez and my team is Ferrari. So I'm stacking up points. I'm just not stacking up enough points to compete with the the top big boys. Hey, golf clap, my friend. One other omission, one other omission from last week as well. You know, we kicked off the show and we try to be as as inclusive as we can possibly be with this show. We want to make this an inclusive environment and we want to welcome people from every corner of the globe. And last week we spoke to a couple of uh, fairly significant religious holidays that were underway. Uh, we We omitted Passover. And for that, sincerely apologize. Of course, Passover is running from Friday, April 15th until this coming weekend, April 23rd. So for everybody that celebrates, everyone that uh, embraces that holiday and that uh, that time of year, you know, our, our, our apologies for not uh, recognizing that off the top last show. That was an omission that we uh, we definitely own. 
And let's not forget, it's also Ramadan right now. Ramadan goes until, I think, an, another week or so until I have the first. Or yeah, May 1st, May. Sunday, so May 1st. Yep. Yeah. A lot of very important celebrations and uh, occasions going on across the board right now. Yeah. So that was that was our bad. So we apologize that uh, for that, guys. Okay, let's get back to the news now. And uh, as I was mentioning, we're going to stick with the Ferrari theme. And this is news, but not really, because this used to be a thing before Haas were really, really terrible. And it's not like they've <laughs> ever been like super amazing. But they used, there was a time when they were com- more competitive than they have been over the past two years or so. And they're, well, uh, supposedly there's a couple or several teams that are starting to knock on the FIA door, making inquiries about the relationship between Ferrari and Haas and just how legit this relationship is and the amount of parts that, uh, that, that Haas is acquiring from Ferrari and whether or not this is basically, you know, like, 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 like how above board is this? Now, you're very good at explaining these things. Gunther Steiner, team principal at Haas, you know, he's kind of brushing off saying, you know, there's nothing to see here, guys. If you want to come in and take a look and audit us or have your investigation, whatever it is, we've got nothing to hide. You know, come in, have at it, do what you need to do. He seems very, he to me, he's saying the things that doesn't sound like somebody seems like all that concerned he to me he's project at least he's projecting publicly the image that they're they're doing everything above board and uh, within within the rules yeah there's a reported rift within the pack of teams that compete in formula one apparently there's three teams that are asking the fia to do a deep dive diagnostic or analysis of the relationship between haas and formula one or formula one ferrari to make sure that it's effectively above board and by that what i mean is they believe they believe that there are some nefarious behaviors happening. So we've talked mm-hmm. before in the past about the fact that not every team has the resources to develop an engine, right? You have Renault Alpine, they develop an engine because they are a manufacturer backed organization and they have the resources to do it. Mercedes produces engines, Ferrari produces engines. And until really until 2025, Honda produces engines for Red Bull. But you have a lot of teams that don't have the ability to produce their own engine. Aston Martin, they buy their engine from Mercedes. And McLaren, again, they buy their engine from from Mercedes. And you have a team like Haas and you have a team like Alfa Romeo who buy their engines from Ferrari. And that's allowed because there are certain components of a Formula One car that are considered transferable components or TRCs. And that basically means one team can build them and sell them to another team. So if I'm a smaller team, I don't have to develop my own engine because I can go and buy it from another team. Now, what we've known about Haas since they entered the sport is they had a very specific rule book, very specific playbook. And their playbook led by Gene Haas was that we are going to buy every transferable component allowed within the rule book to build our car. So they went to Ferrari and said, here's our shopping list. These are all the parts that we're allowed to buy. These are all the parts that we want to buy. And they've been doing that for the last five years. And with the exception of the first couple races in 2016, because they had a couple of top five finishes right Mm -hmm. at the beginning of their inaugural season, for the better part of the last five years, nobody's cared that they've been doing this because they've generally been pretty terrible. Now things are different because once again, they're showing flashes of competitiveness 
competitiveness. And a couple of other developments have happened. One is that Haas has now opened an office at Marinello, so at the Ferrari factory. And furthermore, a lot of personnel from Ferrari that could no longer be employed by Ferrari because of the cost cap have migrated over to Haas. So what a lot of these teams, including and especially McLaren, are saying is, look, Mr. FIA, I want you to go and do a deep dive to make sure that everything's above board. Because while it's okay for one team to sell transferable components to another, it is absolutely not okay for one team to share data with another team. And what's being alluded Mm -hmm. to here is essentially that, hey, they're buying all those transferable components, but there's other types of IP and there's other types of information that could be making its way over to Haas. And now it's never going to be possible to completely outlaw this, but it is incumbent on the FIA to absolutely and fiercely guard those rules. So it's a pretty serious allegation for a team like McLaren to make. And obviously McLaren is a fiercely independent team and don't think that they absolutely despise the fact that they have to buy their engines from Mercedes. They don't want to. They were forced to because the relationship with Honda deteriorated so badly. So they're forced to buy an engine from their chief rival. And a lot of people are like, well, why is it so bad that they're buying the best engine in in the competition or in the championship? Well, the challenge is if you're forced to buy an engine from Mercedes, that engine has been designed by Mercedes for their car. It has not been designed for a McLaren. So McLaren designs their car and then they get an engine that's designed for an entirely different car and they've got to figure out how to package that and put it into their car and then be competitive. So they are immediately at a disadvantage relative to Mm -hmm. Mercedes, even if they have the same power unit because so much of their design has to be built around the fact that you're incorporating somebody else's power unit. Now, the other thing that makes this ultra, ultra, ultra ultra ironic is that if you flash back 13 or 14 years when McLaren was absolutely a powerhouse in Formula One and they were in for all intents and purposes a hybrid works team for Mercedes because back in 2007, 8, 9, Mercedes didn't have a dedicated team. They didn't have their own team on the grid until 2010 when they bought the Braun team. McLaren themselves were effectively setting up B teams. So you had a company in Banbury in the UK called ProDrive who used to prepare a lot of the Subarus for the World Rally Championship. They were going to enter Formula One, but they were going to effectively buy customer cars from McLaren. So McLaren were actually going to prepare complete cars, hand them over to ProDrive, and ProDrive would race those cars. Very much as we were seeing back then with Honda and their B team, and very much the same we were seeing with Red Bull and Alpha Tauri or Toro Rosso as it were at that time. But at that point, the FIA stepped in and said, look, customer cars, that is not going to be a part of the future of F1. If you're an independent team, we are going to have listed components, which became transferable components, but ultimately the core of the car car, the, the, the survival cell, the chassis, that has to be built in-house, but there are components that you can buy. So I do find it a little bit ironic that McLaren is the team screaming bloody murder about the fact that maybe the relationship that Haas has with Ferrari is a little bit too close when 14 years ago, they were absolutely leading the movement to have customer teams in Formula One. Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting situation, right? And we've seen these uh, discussions uh, before, but also not just so much with these listed and un- unlisted parts, but just the, the the fact like, and we've talked about it many times over the years, like the, the the whole B team or the junior team, and especially how much it's almost like your, your pet peeve and, and how much you dislike them. But 
it, it's kind of funny. I mean, the the way that we saw with like the pink Mercedes two years ago with the with the the the, the racing points and that whole saga about how they 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 basically copied the, the Mercedes from the year before, which I guess was it the W10? Yeah, I think it might have been. Anyways, and and then eventually what they nailed them on was on the brake ducts, uh, the cooling ducts, if, um, which seems so random. So you know, th- these this really isn't. I mean, it's news today, but it's not really news because we've seen it in relation to Haas before in the past, but we've also seen it, the, these role, because back in 2020, there was like almost this rolling protest week in, week out against uh, several teams. And I think McLaren was one of those teams that was constantly right. protesting Absolutely. racing point in 20. And I believe that, um, who else? So there was, there were several of them. I think Williams was another, I think Renault slash, well, I would have been, yeah, Renault rather than Alpine. So th- those are some of the names that are still kind of being rumored that, uh, that are, or telling the FIA or asking them, kind of pushing them in that direction to take a closer look at uh, what what Haas is doing. But the other sort of the other situation that kind of popped into my mind that was different but similar in the way was the last year that that Red Bull was running the Renault power units and they had the Honda power units in the in, in the uh, well, I guess it would have been the Toro Rosos that year rather right. than before they rebranded as Alpha Tauri. And I mean, it, it's the same but different you know they're, they're getting all this data and you know there was obviously data sharing going on between the teams because there it was very much a try before you buy scenario for red bull it's like well you know we we don't like these Renault engines so right go back all the way to 2014 even back then right from the get-go in the turbo hybrid era i mean christian horner was i mean the, the criticism got more and more over the years but i mean even going back to 14 even then he was critical about how underpowered the 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 Renault was compared to the ferrari and the mercedes power units anyways i always thought that was a little bit kind of interesting that they, they 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 had that situation but again it's 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 the same but different that we're seeing now with this complaint with with Haas. so we'll see whether or not it, it goes there but i mean the the precedent has been set now with that whole racing point incident from from 2 years ago i very much agree. And I just want to clarify my position on this one, that I do not believe that customer cars are good for Formula One, that if if innovation is very much the lifeblood of Formula One, that you can't have a team enter the sport and buy a complete car from a competitor and just stick your own livery on it. And that doesn't happen in Formula One, which is, which is absolutely great. But I think that it's a very fine line that has to be walked between expecting cars to innovate to a significant extent and allowing teams sure. to build to effectively build a customer team by buying those transferable components that I talked about but also access data from from that other team and I've said this before as well that I think it's an absolute I'm trying to think of the correct term here, the right words, but I think it reflects very poorly, my friend. I think it reflects very poorly on Formula One that you have 10 teams on the grid and that two of them are effectively the same team, that that Alpha Tauri is in essence, and everybody knows it is nothing more than a feeder team for Red Bull, that in a world mm-hmm. where a scarcity of Formula One teams is a real problem, that there's only 10 of them, that one of the teams on the grid serves no purpose other than to serve a master team in, in Red Bull. I think that's disgusting. And quite frankly, I would like to see that addressed in the next Concord agreement, and hopefully Red Bull will be forced to sell that team on because I just think it's so distasteful. 
Yeah, just a little bit more clarity when it comes to the relationship that uh, Ferrari and Haas uh, and Haas have at uh, Maranello. So they do have a base there, uh, Haas that is. But even going back to some comments that uh, Ferrari team principal Matteo Bonato made way back in 2020, he was pretty adamant uh, back then that they, even though that Haas have uh, a facility at Maranello. It's a completely different building. Sure, they're sharing a wind tunnel. <coughs> Excuse me. They are buying parts off of um, off of a Ferrari, but they're not exchanging any data. Anyways, uh, Bonato had to say, quote, those persons will be in Maranello in a completely separate building to Scuderia Ferrari, so they will not have access to the Scuderia Ferrari building. It is a separate, and they will remain in that area. Haas is a fully independent team compared to Ferrari. It is not a junior team, and we are not exchanging information beyond what's possible by the regulations. So it's a completely different organization independent to Ferrari, end quote. Sure, it's a customer team, but Ferrari, they've recently had problems with the FIA with that shady deal after the end of 2018 toward 2019, whenever it was, that's never seen the light of day, but we all sus- suspect it was some sort of illegal fuel map. And I, I just, uh, you know, I would struggle to see the scenario that they could almost hide something in plain sight as this uh, relationship with, uh, with with Haas. And if something shady is going on, it would just just it just to be it defies logic that they could just almost flaunt it openly like that. It just uh, I, I just I just can't see it happening. I mean, I I'm inclined to take Bonato and Gunther Steiner at their word on this. Sure, they're they're buying power units off of them. Sure, they're 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 buying all the list parts that they can off of them, putting them on the Haas. Yes, they have a Ferrari Academy driver in their car in the form of Mick Schumacher. But I mean, apart from those few small things, they're a completely independent team, right? I mean, it sounds a little bit ridiculous when I say it that way, but when, when it comes to the things like the, 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 the personnel having their own facility, yes, I believe that. Are they sharing a wind tunnel? Yes. But anything else? I struggle to, to the, the credibility that they would you know, be, be sharing data. I, I, I just can't there. I mean, there's a ton of upside for Haas, but it would be like the, the miscalculation of epic proportions of Ferrari were to do something that idiotic. I mean, it would be stupid if they did that and did it so openly. What would be the benefit for Ferrari? Like we absolutely, none, if, none. if that's my point, yeah, that's like my it's, point. it's, is it to preserve a relationship with a customer team and in customer team, I mean the team that is paying for engines and all those transferable components or is but it they don't to, need the money? They, 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 they don't, don't need that but, revenue, right? But, but they need a seat for their junior drivers. That's true. That, that's that, the that only, would be the only possible thing, right? Yeah. That would be the only possible thing. Secure a yep. seat in a competitive car might be the only thing. But to your point, given what happened in 2019, I don't know how close to the sun Ferrari wants to fly and the sun being the FIA in this case. <laughs> I think they got off very lucky three years ago and I don't think they want to push their luck. But it also makes sense that independent teams like McLaren, I get it. They buy their power unit and some transferable components to support that from Mercedes. They are largely a proudly independent team. It's also rumored that Alpine is one of the teams that's questioning this relationship. They are also fiercely independent because they don't even have any customer teams buying components or a power unit from them today. So it makes sense, but it's also good because the reality is we know how Formula One operates and how teams operate. And if they are not held accountable and if they're not kept honest, slippery things can happen. And we've seen teams move into that gray area more often than not when you look back at the history of this sport. So maybe it's good that they're being kept honest. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, at least if it comes down to that, at least if they're being held accountable, if they're going to be say that they're going to be transparent about it, then sure, be transparent. If you got nothing to hide, prove it. Then, you know, then there's no more questions that could be asked. But, you know, you, you raise a good point there about uh, Renault slash uh, Alpine. It's interesting that uh, they haven't really tried to push, uh, you know, or, or try to link up with another team with a customer engine. Because a couple of years ago, I know that Surreal Abitabul is no longer with uh, with Alpine. But I remember him saying after Renault decided to, or sorry, and, and Red Bull uh, parted ways and Red Bull hooked up with, with Honda, he seemed very relaxed and very nonchalant about it and just uh, almost to the the effects or the, the, the sentiment was, you know, it, it actually is more of, um, I wouldn't say maybe not go as far to say it cost them money to do business with Red Bull, but you could tell it was certainly was a drain on resources to provide customer engines just for a single team rather than just uh, to, to themselves. So can I add something to that? Or, yeah, go for so it by all means. I was having a conversation about this the other day and somebody was asking me a question about, hey, if I'm a customer team, if I'm buying yep. power units from another team, how much input and how much feedback can I give them into the development of that engine? The answer is absolutely much nothing. nothing. <laughs> that crate shows up at your loading bay, you uncrate it, and you figure out the rest. Now, yep. the team that supplies the engines is typically going to provide a couple of full-time technicians, engineers to support you, but you have no input in the design of that engine, the performance of that engine, or the philosophy behind the design. Nothing. That engine shows up, you got to figure out how it's going to go into your car and you're going to figure out how that car is going to work around it. I believe yep. that one of the things that was driving a real wedge into that relationship between Renault and between between Red Bull is that after Renault re-entered the sport in 2015, because remember, Renault left in the late 2000s. They mm -hmm. were still an engine supplier. They were supplying Red Bull. They had a tremendous amount of success. They ran a four straight championships, 10, 11, 12, 13. Then they come back into the sport in 15. I think that... Red Bull were still expecting to have that same level of ad hoc bespoke design that they had been getting before. And now Renault's here saying, no, we're designing this power unit for our car. You take it as it comes. You take it as it comes out of the crate. And I think Red Bull being a very high maintenance customer that had certain expectations about what that relationship should have been like, were expecting that they were going to be able to continue to dictate the design and the engineering of that power unit, which wasn't realistic at that point. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that that's a very good point. I mean, I, I think that uh, Renault and Red Bull in that uh, that era when they were rattling off championship after championship there, you know, 10, 12 years ago, that was very much in the same ilk of McLaren and Honda in the 80s. And yep. then McLaren and Mercedes in the early exactly. 2000s, right? Exactly. And then because one of the kind of the, the, the criticisms or, or I think it wasn't a well, it was a criticism, but it was a, it was after they'd already parted ways with with Renault. Remember the first year that uh, they had Honda Power. I remember a a comment from Christian Horner just to, to the, the the fact that there was more synergy between Honda and Red Bull because the Renault was something that very much like you say they just got a crate and they had to bolt it onto the back of their car and figure out how it worked. Whereas you know there was real cooperation between Tokyo and between Milton Keynes to integrate that Honda Power unit 
into the back of the Red Bull and make it work together. And it, and it, it just reminded me a lot of uh, some of those other relationships, like I mentioned, like McLaren Honda, Williams Renault, and and uh, Willi- sorry uh, Mercedes uh, uh, McLaren as well, where there was a real partnership uh, between the, the, the two teams. Anyways, Mark, let's take another quick break and we'll come back on the flip side and we'll talk about a bunch more. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And before we go on to some other topics, one thing I just wanted to uh, just uh, touch on briefly, because uh, we were talking about Haas uh, just before the break there, um, is that Gunther Seiner says that uh, he is not looking to rush into any new sponsorship uh, deals uh, in Formula One. And I guess uh, twice bitten, forever shy is the way to go. I mean, with the, the, the past couple of uh deals that they've had uh, i mean rich energy that is still the most bizarre thing i still never seen a bottle or any kind of the rich energy beverage anywhere on the face of the earth mind you why would i but <laughs> still that that was a bizarre one but it, it's interesting now that compared to where they were even like a year or so ago where i mean gunther was basically going around and Maybe he wasn't groveling to sign people up to support or, or sponsor Haas, but I don't think he was too far from it. But I mean, now after this, uh, you know, recent termination of the deal with the Urukali, and it, he doesn't seem the the, the the sense of urgency isn't there to sign up uh, a sponsor with the first group that comes through the door. He seems a lot more relaxed about it to really get the next title sponsorship deal for this team right third time maybe is the charm and i yeah, have maybe, to right? think or if three have, strikes and you're out yeah possibly and i i wonder sometimes how gunther has been able to uh to make it this far you know he's been an intrinsic and deeply embedded part of the haas formula one experiment since it entered the sport and they've really enjoyed no success and i think obviously the rich energy experience was a stain on formula one and i think your colleague was a disaster from a pr perspective for the sport and even worse given the fact that the son of the oligarch owner of your was in one of their cars I have to think that they are probably looking inwards for a new partner. And by inwards, I mean looking domestically in the United States. I I have to think that despite the fact that American fans have probably and rightfully so turned their noses upwards at that team, given how little respect that it's shown to American fans, I have to think that they're probably shopping the brand and trying to find a way to find some key domestic sponsors. Now, I've read in the past that Gene Haas is an incredibly proud man and wouldn't necessarily want to partner with another large American firm with a logo on his car. But I I have to think that that's where they're going to go this time. And I also have to think that there's an appetite amongst large American companies to get their branding and to get their logo on the side of what should be a proudly American Formula One car. Yeah, exactly. 
Anyways, I don't think there's too much more to add to this no. one because the, the next one I want to talk about is interesting because uh, we, we've discussed it kind of, um, we, we've breezed over it a couple of times uh, this year. And I know that uh, some of our listeners have asked for a little bit more detail on this. And the, the FIA has uh, released a new driving standards uh, document in which they give more color and context for what uh, constitutes uh, overtaking on the inside of a corner, outside of a corner, uh, giving back uh, positions impeding and uh, guidelines for chicanes and s-bends now we should discuss this one now because uh, in their document i'm going to read this uh, verbatim uh, when it comes to overtaking on the inside of the corner the second uh, paragraph excuse me was a little bit more interesting uh, for me and it says as follow quote when considering and this is uh, when it comes to basically Stewart's uh, decisions uh, should there be an incident so anyway so I'll read this uh, like I said uh, verbatim quote when considering what is a significant portion for an overtaking on the inside of a corner among the various factors that will be looked at by the stewards when exercising their discretion the stewards will consider if the overtaking car's front tires are alongside the other car by no later than the end the apex of the corner end quotes now that kind of makes sense but their front tires alongside the other car which point are we talking the cockpit are we talking the middle of the car are we talking front wheels to front wheels like like where is that where is that reference point on the overtaking car and the car being overtaken can you provide a little bit more clarity to this? Because it's sort of kind of still doesn't really answer the question as to how their, you know, what their, what, what their framework is to make a ruling on something like, like this. Yeah, probably not going to be able to provide any further clarification. I will note that these driving standards guidelines were issued to the teams on March 19th. So almost immediately ahead of the inaugural Grand Prix of the 2022 championship. And they were designed, and to your point, they talk about guidelines for overtaking on the inside of a corner, guidelines for overtaking on the outside of a corner, which is a topic that you and I discussed relentlessly last year because it continued to come up partly because yeah and the track limits so again that's another part of these driver guidelines is section three it talks about track limits and it talks about impeding and it talks about giving back a lasting advantage and it also talks about respecting flags so all of these things are good and i'm glad that they're being put in black or white that said, I still find them to be fairly ambiguous. And the bigger risk mm-hmm. isn't even necessarily that they're not necessarily black or white and that they're still a little bit open to interpretation. None of this matters if the stewards don't call the race based on this rule set. Like we've had rules in the past. And last year, I understood track limits. They just weren't calling them consistently. So again, yes. it's nice that we have a new driver standards guidelines document section three that's updated requirements of article 27.3 of the f1 sporting regulations blah 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 it's good that there's increased clarification and they firmed up the language but none of this matters if the stewards don't consistently call this so to me to everyone at home to you i think we're going to try to hold the fia and formula one a little bit more accountable this year because last year the language here wasn't quite as firm and i kind of gave the stewards a little bit of breathing room and i gave them a little bit of space simply because it was difficult to judge those circumstances. This year, they firmed up the language. 
probably not so much when it comes to overtaking on the inside and the outside of the corners, but track limits, impeding, giving back a lasting advantage, respecting of the flags. I think they've done a good job of yes. updating and firming up Agreed. the language there. Yep. I just hope the stewards can execute on it. And I'll give you an example. So uh, track limits, here's the updated language. For the avoidance of doubt, the white lines defining the track edges are considered to be part of the track, but the curbs are not. Should a car leave the track for any reason, the driver may rejoin. However, this may only be done when it is safe to do so and without gaining any lasting advantage. A driver will be judged to have left the track if no part of the car remains in contact with the track. To me, that is crystal clear. I'm yep. very curious now to see how they'll continue to call track limits this year. Yeah, I mean, for me, like like you say, the uh, track limits, impeding, respect of flags, like it, it's pretty cut and dry. I mean, I, I love the fact it's like anything between right. the, the, the 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 white lines on either side of the track is the track. Anything beyond is, is not. I love the, the the language for the giving back a lasting advantage that they have to give that back by giving back the timing advantage or drop back, give the position back to the car that uh, behind them. The you know section one the guideline for overtaking on the inside of the corner as we were just talking about that is still not very it's not a hundred percent clear to me. Now the guidelines for overtaking on the outside of a corner for me in this language is a little clearer because the second uh, okay. portion of this statement and 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 I like this so I'll read this and then. So the third sentence, the third paragraph, I, I know exactly the image that came up in my mind when I read it. I'll be curious to see if, if you draw the same conclusion. So I'm just going to read this off. Quote, when considering what is a significant portion for an overtaking on the outside of a corner among the various factors that would be looked at by the stewards when exercising their discretion, the stewards will consider if the overtaking car is ahead of the other car from the apex of the corner. That to me seems, or sorry, end quote. So to me, that seems pretty cut and dry. The The overtaking on the inside of the corner is like I said, okay, well, where are the front uh, wheels on the overtaking car in respect? Where, where is that that reference point on the, the, the car that's being overtaken? That to me is still a little bit uh, vague. But then the last part of the, uh, the overtaking on the outside of a corner, quote, the car being overtaken must be capable of making the corner while remaining within the limits of the track, end quote. Think about it. Now tell me, what is the image that pops into your mind? And I'll read it again for you and all the folks at home. Quote, the car being overtaken must be capable of making the corner while remaining within the limits of the track, end quote. Are you flashing back to a race last year? Yes. Are you flashing back to an incident between a Red Bull and a Mercedes driver? Yes. Did it happen in the, oh my goodness. Is this Abu Dhabi, the final race? Uh, there, there was a couple now. Like the, the one that kind of like popped into my mind was um, what was Brazil. But you know, I'd have to go back oh, and look at that Brazil. pass because because Max went really wide. But then I can't remember now. Was Lewis trying to go on the inside of that turn four or five or whatever it was, or was he just uh, kind of trying right. try to go around the outside? But the, the 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 part that really caught my mind or caught my eye was the car being uh, overtaken must be capable of making the corner while with remaining within the limits of the track. So I'd have to go back 
back and look at that overtake more to, to, to see exactly where Lewis was. But that was the, you know, I mean, Lewis was all over the radio complaining that he was being pushed off because that is a very tight corner because, I mean, they come into it and it basically, it's not a hairpin, but it's close to it. And Max really went wide and and, and basically, I, I can't remember if he, he might have gone over the curbs on the other side and at least got two, like the outer wheels onto the, the, the curbs of not uh, beyond. So that that was one that uh, that that really stuck out in in my mind but you know it th- that middle paragraph where it says the 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 stewards will consider the overtaking car is ahead of the other car from the apex of the corner that is a lot more concrete than the overtaking on the inside of it so anyways, you know I, yeah i'm glad ahead. we had the conversation no i was just going to say i'm glad we had the conversation to to walk this or to talk this through a little bit because i think sometimes when you when you see this written on a piece of paper it can be a little bit overwhelming to to absorb and digest and there's a lot of phrases there uh apex for instant etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think sometimes it can be a little bit hard to to contextualize and to visualize mm-hmm. in your head but i think it's helpful to to talk this through so i think then we're in generally in agreement that all of this is good it's an improvement on the language that was used to govern the sport and govern these type of incidents last year i think the question now and the accountability is really going to fall less so even on the race director but it's really going to fall on the stewards that hey the fia has given you now crystal clear or at least significantly improved guidelines or mm-hmm. guidance for officiating these type of incidents on track, what are you going to do with it? And are you going to successfully and consistently call these? Because when you talk about these last year, whether it was overtaking on the inside, the outside or track limits, even giving back a position, these were constantly points of contention last year that really upset a lot of races because we had some great races, but all we were talking about were things like track limits. And I don't want that type of language to dominate the conversation after a Grand Prix this year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I know that uh, three races isn't really the, the the biggest sample set, but at least the conversations that we've had so far have, you know, it hasn't been the way that the the races have been governed and have been, of course, been, been so officiated. True. And, and, and that's the way it should be. I, I love the, the clarity that we get on two through five on these uh, driving guidelines. So it's going to happen at some point where this overtaking on the inside of the uh, corner, it's going to come to a head at some point. Somebody's going to leave the door open. Somebody's going to try and sneak up the inside. The car being overtaken is going to come back across saying, well, you know, I was ahead. That was my corner. And, you know, they're going to come together. They're, you know, they're going to knock each other out or whatever the case may be. And then it'll be the application and the decision that uh, that the stewards make at that point. I think will really set a, obviously set a precedent, but also give us a clear indication of how they're going to, to to call those. Because, like I say, out of those five points where they cover everything off, that one to me is a, a little bit vague. You know, like where is that uh, that reference point? But interesting so far and i i just love the fact that we are not talking about the track limits like you said because that drove me nuts and that drove a lot of people bananas last year as well i mean if if the track limits have always been to keep the car between the two white lines on either side of the asphalt why was it not called consistently and and i think that's it, it, it's not just formula 1 i think that's just sports in general it's just like what's what's traveling what's a foul what's uh, you know you know <laughs> what what is anything right it's the ones that are like clear cut but they it's it, it either is or it isn't and 
it's that inconsistency in officiating that drives people crazy. And I know it just drove a lot of people bananas last year, this arbitrary, you know, application of track limits. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I, I guess hindsight is 2020 can go back and, and, and look at as well, you know, the signs were there just the way that they kind of called uh, things all season long and, you know, how it kind of culminated at, uh, at Yas Marina at the end of the season. But let's, let's, let's not go there. We've had that uh, discussion enough. <laughs> Unmute yourself, my friend. Here, I'll mute you. I wasn't you even talking. I was yawning. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I was de- I was definitely trying to add a point. You know, we, we talked a lot about the winter and it's not something that yeah. we want to poke and not something we want to provoke. But obviously, there were some pretty well-documented venom between the supporting camps of, of Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen last year. And of course, that situation became inflamed at Monza when the two of them came together. It became inflamed at Silverstone when the two of them came together. And I think a lot but, but of But why the- wait so so much longer? I mean, like we, we had Silverstone, we had Monza. Why did they have to wait so much longer? You would have thought after Monza at least, you know, especially because these two guys, you know, they now have a history, right? Why wait another six months to say this is what's passing on the outside of the corner? This is what uh, you know, constitutes passing on the inside of the corner. Then everybody knows. And then just to, th- this is what it is. This is how we're calling it from, from now on. I mean, it's like in football, you know, like, you know, what, what's a face mask? You know, a face mask is pretty obvious. You get your hands up in the guy's, uh, you know, grill and you pull on it, you twist his helmet around. It, it's obvious what a face mask is. So why can't they do the same? It's like, this is, this is how we're going to call it, like passing on the outside or the inside. And then, you know, it just, just make a decision and enforce it and move forward. So, and it doesn't matter if it's between Lewis and Max or between, you know, Charles Leclerc and, and George Russell, whoever, it, it should be the same standard for everyone. It's just this, this, this sort of waffling about and the, the lack of, you know, you know, guts for lack of a better word to make a decision and just this this is how we're going to do it this is we're going to ca- you know call it from now on you guys deal with it this this is reality so i should be upset that you stole my thunder but i'm so happy to see you worked <laughs> up on a podcast because typically yeah i love it you're it's a you've got a little <laughs> bit of sebastian vettel circa 2016 coming out but you you really stole my point and my my point was really going to be that last year there was a lot of venom there was a tremendous amount of negativity in the formula 1 community <laughs> the formula one community was being torn apart at times by yeah. this by the max verstappen and the lewis hamilton camps at each other's throat but that happened and that was nurtured by the inability or the, or the misunderstanding of those incidents and it was because there was no consistency about how those moments and those incidents were being called which created and cultivated the battle and the war of words between all these members of the f1 community but furthermore the the lack of clarity. So it was the lack of clarity. It was the lack of execution. It was the lack of guidance, the lack of governance. And to your point, this document should have been released, I don't know, the day after Silverstone last year as a point of clarification. Should it have hit March 19th, 2022? Well, I mean, after Silverstone, remember what it was? They had that uh, Red Bull did that ridiculous simulation where they had Alex Elbon driving around the track. You know, that that was just comical. I mean, it, it was just... 
so you know it was ridiculous what they did and uh, it just it just makes me shake my head and, and laugh that 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 was the you know they they were willing to go to those lengths to try and prove their their case right and i i mean i'm i'm not trying to be anti red bull and pro mercedes here i just thought that it just seems comical in light of the, the the powers that be, you know, that come down and say, no, this is what it, you know, th- this is the situation. This is how it should be called. And Lewis either did it the right or wrong way, or Max was right, or Max was wrong, whatever it was in this case. And there, there's radio silence from 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 the governing body, and you have the teams going out there on the track themselves to basically recreate this uh, this, this incident in in a completely. It was embarrassing. It and was, it was ex- it, the it perfect was, word embarrassing. It was it embarrassing is, for the was. sport. It was embarrassing for the FIA, and it was embarrassing for Red Bull. But it's a byproduct of the fact that nobody understood the rules, and you had the teams trying to dictate to the FIA how the rules should have been called. That if you you write yeah. the rules if you are the FIA and you write the rules and you also enforce the rules how could we ever be, end up in a circumstance where Red Bull is trying to explain to you the rules by putting <laughs> a car on the track with a test driver to reenact what had happened it was absurd and again it was all at the fault of the FIA so hopefully this year the 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 new race directors and some fresh stewards and a fresh application of the rules and firmed up language about the rules should help mitigate some of what we saw last year. Exactly. Okay, time for one final break. When we come back, at a couple more stories, and we'll talk quickly about Imola, and we'll dive into the mailbag. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Okay, well, welcome back. And for all the gamers out there, EA Sports has revealed the launch date for this year's release, this year's drop of uh, the Formula One, the official Formula One uh, video game. So, which is really, really exciting. So, it's going to be coming July 1st for PS5, Xbox Series XS, PS4, Xbox One and pc so i you know i got last year's version the 2021 which was the first one under the ea banner after they bought the you know the franchise over from codemasters i thought codemasters did a real good job it looked a little more ea-ish last year um so i'm excited now to see what ea sports is going to do with this commodity now that they've had a chance to develop to develop it they're gonna ruin it yeah, <laughs> way, way, way to be so so positive. Yeah, I mean, we, we got two months to see when it comes out, but hopefully, uh, we, we here some, here's some here's things. my concern with with EA, and again, EA is a Vancouver based company, so they're literally in the backyard of, of where yep. we live, and we have a lot of folks that live there. I think one Codemasters did a really great, given the fact that they're a fairly small boutique studio in the UK. I felt that they did a really really good job. What oh, worries yep. me about what worries me about EA is they are the absolute king of loot boxes and microtransactions. And I I just dread a world 
where you will be playing this game and you'll bring your car in for a pit stop and then it's going to cost you five bucks on your credit card to do a tire change. Or if you want to change to a medium <laughs> tire, it's going to charge you $8. And I just read some of the features that are being integrated into this game. And it just, it just smacks of a world where there's going to be a ton of loot boxes, a ton of microtransactions, and that EA is going to find a way to monetize this game in every way possible. Because historically, it's been a really good simulator. Now, the yep. only thing that's unfortunate for me is I'm not allowed to buy it because I buy it every year. I never play it. My wife gets mad and says, you're not spending $100 on it again next summer. Inevitably, I do. But I think this is the summer where I'm not going to be able to pull it off yeah you know to to be be honest i don't buy it every year i usually buy it every couple of years and i, I tend to do with like not not just uh, with with games but i tend to do it every once in a while even with like uh, even like other uh, versions of uh, software i tend to come back and uh, just wait and uh, and uh you know wait till something comes out like a year or two later and i I really liked the, like you say, like the Codemasters ones. The one that I never really got a chance to to try out was that uh, Schumacher Special Edition that came out a couple of years ago. Because they have had some special drops uh, here and there over the past uh, several years. And I always kind of like, the, the one thing I thought that was kind of cool, I think... Um, well, out of the ones that, uh, that that I had, I think it was, was it 2019? They had some really cool historic uh, Formula One cars right, in there, like right. the Ferrari 312T, you know, the classic Nicky Lauda 1970s Ferrari, which just screamed when you drive it around the track. And it was great with the, you know, when you're playing it uh, through the home theater and on the big right. screen and everything like that. Another one I think they had in that drop was the McLaren MP44, you know, the, with the, you know, the Honda uh turbo engine in the back so what was that like 1986 ish i'm thinking it's about the year that that car was out sort of mid to late 80s that that was another brilliant one so those those were always fun uh cars to uh, tend to drive but like yourself those sort of like gimmicky loot boxy things i'm not a big fan of that you know like when i play some of like the other ea games like nhl and uh, madden fifa games like that you know, you have like the opportunity to like customize things and spend tokens or buy things on your account or whatever. It's just like, especially when I, I've noticed it, uh, it was probably even in there with like the, uh, the, the Codemasters version, but I don't really care for things like buying like fancy gloves or different helmets or whatever. It's just like, I'm just there to, you know, play the game and race either a, a one shot race or do a race weekend or a career or a season or whatever it is like that sort of stuff. I, I really don't care for. Suffice it to say, our lucrative forthcoming EA sponsorship is in the bin. That one is done. You'll have to you'll have to put away the bid on that Mercedes Benz you were hoping to pick up for another week or two. Oh, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's. Uh, well, this is an important one. We maybe should have talked about this a, a little bit earlier on. Uh, we did talk about it because this was a story. It wasn't really so much breaking news this time last week, but it was on the radar. It was about a last-ditch uh, attempt to, to try and block the uh, Miami GP from going ahead. Anyways, a judge has cleared the final legal roadblock for the Miami Grand Prix. It, it will go ahead on the 8th of May after the uh, Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Alan Fine ruled against a lawsuit that had been brought uh, before the court by uh, local residents who had tried to block the Formula One uh, uh, race. And, uh, well, I, I think we were talking about it last week that... Uh, I mean, I mean, you can understand why some people would be, you know, against it. But it seemed at this point in the game that 
were this to be blocked, just the the amount and 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 you know potentially the amount and and dollar figures involved with like counter lawsuits could be massive. So it just seemed like it would be. It seemed like a bit of a stretch that it wouldn't uh, go off. Okay, so Marco, what, what do you want to do now? Do you want to do mailbag or do you want to talk about Imola first? Let's talk about Imola first because sure. yeah, that is me. the yeah. Okay, so we're back at Imola now in uh, in in Italy or in San Marino for the third time in three years after they filled in in the COVID rearranged season in 2020. Now this is obviously an historica Formula One track was off the calendar for a very very long time before they were really hastily added in 2020. It's been a good race, but it is. And I was thinking, what is my lasting impression from the two races that we've seen there over the past uh, two years? And the one thing that immediately stood out in my mind is just how narrow this track is. And what, what, what specifically brought that into my mind was the crash that we saw last year between Valtteri Bottas and George Russell. Obviously, we'd seen some moisture. We'd seen some race. The track was slick off of the racing line. And when they came down that start-finish uh, straight, coming into the uh, the chicane at Tamburello at uh, turn run one uh, a very sharp uh, left-hander George trying to touch or pass a uh, Valtteri very narrow track he gets a, a couple of uh, wheels onto the greasy part of the track maybe just put it onto the grass you know he loses it whether he was pushed by Valtteri was never really proven he said he was we couldn't really make a definitive ruling one way or another based on the camera angles we had available at the time but uh, yeah, narrow track. It's got some fast portions. Another thing that stood out in my mind uh, last year was watching uh, Lewis kind of crab walking his car backwards out of a gravel trap after uh, he got off. You know, he went into gravel and when 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 the track was really quite uh, greasy there. But it is uh, the circuit is uh, four point nine kilometers long. The lap record was set by Lewis in twenty twenty is one fifteen point four eight four. Uh, total race distance of a uh, three hundred and nine. 9.05 kilometers, 63 laps. It is going to be more of the softer range of all well, mid range of the, the, the Pirelli C2 hard, C3 mediums, and the C4 softs. And uh, it's, yeah, I, I would have to say, based on what we've seen, I'm expecting to see more of the same uh, that we've seen over the past uh, couple of races. I expect the Ferrari is going to be strong again the, this, uh, the, the, this weekend. The, the big question, of course, is has Mercedes improved enough after the first three races of the year? And is Red Bull making any progress with the reliability issues that we've seen with their cars over the first three races of the season? Definitely. I like Imola. I was excited. It came back onto the calendar in 2020. Originally, it was just a substitute for the Chinese Grand Prix, and it was added pretty that, yes. pretty yep. late into the campaign. I will be very honest, though. I I. I was super excited that Magello was on. I loved every minute of Magello. I would love to see Magello again, but I'm not going to complain that we have two Italian tracks on the calendar. And let me also just add that for a country the size of Italy to have three world-class FIA grade one circuits in Magello, Imola, yep. and Monza is just phenomenal. You look at the UK, which is often seen as the the heartland or the hinterland of the motorsports industry. You have one truly FIA grade one circuit in Silverstone. Brands Hatch is nowhere near and Circuit of Wales never even got built. And that was supposed to be up and running 10 years ago. So it is astonishing and absolutely speaks to the passion for motorsports in that country that they 
can maintain and sustain three world-class racetracks. Now, Imola's great. I'm more than happy to be in Italy twice this year. Get like I said, I didn't I didn't soak up enough Mugello, but I would like to see it again. The other thing I would add as well that it might be a little bit disorienting when you watch this race for the first time because it's one of the few international circuits that actually run anti clockwise and it takes a little bit of time to adjust to now all of this said a couple of things we should add is it looks like it should be wet all weekend we're expecting rain friday saturday sunday and the other thing to add as well is this is a sprint weekend so we were very excited to talk about sprint weekends last year Certainly not as excited to talk about sprint weekends this year. A couple of changes versus what we saw last year. One, pole will be awarded to the individual that takes top place in qualifying on Friday. It does not get awarded to the winner of sprint qualifying. Sprint qualifying is now actually a sprint race and there are more points available to the winner of sprint race. So Qualifying sets the grid for the sprint. Sprint has more points available, which should in turn trigger hopefully better racing. And all of that said, it's supposed to be a wet weekend. So if it was dry, I would probably agree with you that I would have every reason to think that Ferrari should dominate on this track. It's a relatively high power track, although it is narrow and it punishes mistakes. But if it's going to be wet, it could be highly, highly unpredictable. and We could see some unexpected things. One of the storylines that that you touched on, which is Red Bull reliability, is one that I'll certainly be paying attention to. They've had some major issues with their fuel cell. We're not totally clear what's going on, whether it was a vacuum seal, whether it was a fuel pump, whether it was a fuel line that became dislodged or loose, possibly because of some some, uh, unexpected issues. I don't know. I, I think this could be an interesting weekend. I, I I hesitate to make any predictions. I mean, if it's dry, if if Ferrari qualifies well, if they get out of the sprint race unscathed, I, I have every reason to think that they're going to be successful and they could score a couple of podium finishes in the Grand Prix on Sunday. If it's wet, I have no idea. It could be wide open, which could make for an exciting weekend. Well, compared to last year, the weather is going to be a little bit warmer, regardless if it's wet or not. Last year, it was wet at the start. It was that the track was starting to dry. But however, when the the lights turned green, it was nine degrees Celsius or about 48 degrees Fahrenheit. I was just checking the forecast. So Sunday afternoon at uh, 1 p.m., the forecast at uh, for for Imola, it's looking like showers, um, you know, so they, they, we, we see that again. And we're, they're currently predicting a temperature of about 65 degrees Fahrenheit or about 18 degrees uh, Celsius. So it's going to be it's going to be it's, it's not going to be warm. It's going to be milder than it was last year. I mean, and that was the big complaint that the drivers had last year. It was it was just so darn cold. When, when they started going racing, it was just, it was so difficult for them to generate and keep the heat in those tires, especially after some of the incidents uh, that we saw, especially after that big crash with, uh, with, with uh, George and, and Valtteri. But again, more to your point there about Red Bull, I mean, it's... They've had their issues over the years, but it, it's always been isolated to see them like struggle with the, these uh, these mechanical gremlins through the first three races of the season is is a frequency that we're not really uh, used to. And you, you can see now why Max is, I wouldn't say, yeah, I guess he has resigned to a certain extent because some of the language that, uh, that, that he's uh, been saying, some of the quotes is basically the fact of, well, I'm not really too concerning or concerning myself with, uh, you know, 
competing for the championship at the moment because we're not in the position to really be reliable enough to to finish races, which I think is something that uh, he said just after the last race there. So, I mean, that that's the thing. I mean, if you're not finishing the races, you're obviously not going to score the points. And that was an epic win that he had at uh, at Jeddah just a couple of weeks ago. It was it, it was it was great watching that racing between himself and Charles Leclerc, and that was one of the things I think was a little bit uh, disappointing in Australia was after that great battle that those two guys had, especially the last couple of uh, laps towards the end there when, when Max came out on top, I think we were looking forward for a rematch. And not only was the Red Bull not reliable, he, he, Max just didn't have the pace to stick with Charles at uh, to, to, to begin with. So we weren't going to see a rematch for, of that. So who knows? Uh, it, it'll be fun to watch the qualifying. It'll be fun to watch the sprint race and then ultimately the Grand Prix itself on Sunday afternoon. I see Rocky in the chat just mentioning, hey, I'm not a huge fan of the sprint race concept. It's been around for a year. We we saw three examples last year. We've got three slightly modified versions of the sprint race on the calendar for this year. You've had some time to reflect on it, absorb it, process it, watch it. What are your thoughts heading into year two of the sprint race concept? Yeah, I, I remain open-minded towards it, but I, I'm less enthusiastic about it now than I was last year, mainly because it didn't really deliver what we what we really were hoping it was going to. I, I like the changes that right. they've made to it. That's you know the the you know whoever qualifies best on Friday gets pole on. So I, I like the changes that they've uh, that they've implemented. So whether or not it, it makes for more of a spectacle, uh, I think qualifying is, is pretty much going to be qualifying like we usually see. I, it's just to me, how are the changes going to shake up the sprint race on Saturday? Are, are we going to see more action or are we going to see like we saw last year that, yeah, we'll see some, you know, so, some, some, some good hard racing through the first half a dozen, eight laps or so. And then everybody kind of backs off because, you know, it's like, Hey, we, we've got another 10 laps before this, this thing's a done deal. But, you know, we got a, a, you know, a full length Grand Prix to race this time tomorrow. So let's protect the car and make sure that we, we don't, you know, put ourselves in an adverse position or damage the car or whatever, get into an accident and really put ourselves behind the eight ball for the Grand Prix on Sunday. But I, I'm positive about what I'm seeing. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that it translates to something good. One of the major criticisms last year was that this, the drivers didn't just didn't have enough skin in the game. I'll give you an update because I just sure. alluded to a couple of minutes ago about the fact that there's going to be more points available. So this year, the driver finishing P1 in the sprint race will grab eight points up from just three last year with the point scaling down to one point for eighth place. So significantly more cars will have points available to them. And for those top three positions, there'll be significantly more points available to them. So that's a win for sure. So again, first place netting you eight points versus three points. Now you've got some skin in the game. Yeah, it'll be interesting too to see like uh, how hard uh, the the Ferrari drivers come out uh, for for this one. I mean, they already have like a, a pretty good lead in the championship. Uh, both of them, Charles has got a pretty comfortable lead, and the drivers and the constructors they've got a pretty comfortable gap over uh, Mercedes. So it'll be interesting to see like where they put their focus on the weekend. Are they going to concentrate on qualifying on Friday and then really focus on the race itself, and then just maybe not push it as as hard as 
they need to on Saturday for the sprint. So it, it's kind of interesting now that the, the way that they've shaken things up, whether or not this translate to a, a difference or maybe not a difference, but maybe a different approach, a different uh, strategy towards the sprint race on Saturday. And then the opportunity for, say, some of the other teams, maybe more of your midfield teams, your McLarens, your Alpines, etc., how they're going to approach the, 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 the sprint race on Saturday that's okay, well, we're only going to be out there for 18, 20 laps, whatever it is. Maybe we can really go out there and put the afterburners on and, uh, and do something good. What, what do you think about that, Mark? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I was very optimistic about the sprint race concept last year. Of course, last year, I keep saying sprint race. It was technically sprint qualifying. I still think there's a little bit of massaging here. I think it's, I think it's good that qualifying still counts for pole in the historical record books, but it is yep. still a little bit weird that if you qualify on pole on the Friday, you may not start on pole on the Sunday unless you win the sprint race. It's, I think it's still a little bit disjointed to me. Qualifying yeah, that's should the thing set- I, I still can't get my mind around is some of these little twists to like the rules is just like again don't try to make it too cute just come up with something simple that kind of works and i I don't know it just goes to show that even the formula one hasn't figured out themselves what they're trying to do with this whole whole concept right sorry to jump in my friend yeah no worries uh i'm ready to take some listener questions whenever you are by the way let's yeah let's do it Okay. So the first question, I'm going to flip this one over to you, is from D. Corley at GA Cable. Have the two of you ever thought about doing an episode about the logistics of Formula One? And yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, And absolutely, this is one that I've tried to do a couple of times in the past and brought it along to a certain extent, but never actually got to the point of uh, bringing it to the air for the podcast. So it's something that I've uh, talked about. We've talked about it together. It's just uh, something that we haven't put, we, we actually haven't pulled it off just yet. Yeah, I think that would probably be something that could fit very well into our interview series. It's just about finding the right person that can take us through that journey and explain to us the logistical logistical challenges that are moving this entire circus to 23 different locations around the globe. I get a migraine just thinking about that. (laughs) Well, and and certainly this year with all of the challenges and the backup with global freight, I think logistics and Formula One, something that we all take for granted, right? Like we turn on the TV to watch a race in Brazil and magically the entire paddock is there. All the cars, all the tools, all the motorhomes, it all just magically makes its way from Mexico City to Brazil. And we don't ask any questions. I think this year, given some of the challenges with global Mm. freight and logistics, uh, we probably won't take it for granted as much as we have before. Next question for you, my friend. This comes from at Devin Rance at Skater F1 Pod. Let's play either neither or both with lots of contracts up this year who is more likely to have an f1 seat next year oscar piastri or pato award oh man that that's a great question um I'm going to go with, with with oscar as much as I'd like to see pato get a, a, a an opportunity in formula 1 I, I'm just not sure it's going to happen just yet. I mean, I, I know that they've both kind of had like a look. I, I just have a feeling that, that that maybe if there's, and I, I'm just basing this on my own kind of like gut feeling, but I think it might be Piastri. I don't know why. 
I think so too. I think so too. And I think the seat, so one, we, we know the team that has control is basically, uh, has them under contract right now is open to a potential loan situation next year. Uh, I think this is a driver that could potentially end up in Williams. We know that, uh, we know that the Latifi seat could be open at the end of this year. Williams doesn't need the funding. They've been very clear about that. And if Latifi doesn't perform at the level of Albon this year, I think it's probably fair to think that he's probably not going to have a Formula One seat next year. Sure. And I think yeah. Piastri would be a great replacement for him to pair alongside Albon. And that's coming from somebody that's a huge Nicholas Latifi fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. Okay, another question. We got two more here real quick. One okay. from Juan Solo. Question for the pod. How much should Red Bull be concerned about this weekend at Imola? They've had reliability issues in two of three races, and now they'll be facing another 100 kilometers of race conditions in the sprint. Uh, FWIW, I really don't believe anything Helmet says about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I take everything that uh, he says with a bit of a pinch of salt as well. So, I mean, one one's not the only one that's uh, skeptical about any of those comments coming from, from Marco. But yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that they have to be pretty concerned about having to uh, put those cars out there for another uh, another race session on the Saturday afternoon, considering the issues that they've had through the first uh, three races of the of, of the year. And uh, very much like yourself, I'm going to be watching them like a hawk all, all, all weekend long because it has not been a very good start to 2020, 2022 for Red Bull. I think the good news, though, is we generally have an idea and yeah, we generally have an idea of what issues have been so disruptive and problematic for Red Bull that they're principally related to the fuel system. So the fuel pump, uh, the fuel supply lines, fuel meter, all those kind of pieces. Now, the challenge is almost all of those are standard supply components. So those aren't actually components that Red Bull builds. Those are pieces that they're forced to buy from a standard supplier along with all of the other teams. So it could just be that they've had some absolutely atrocious luck. The bad news is there's nothing they can do about it. They can provide that feedback onto the supplier. But if these are standard supply components, it's just luck of the draw. You get a mm -hmm. good part, you're great. You get a bad part. It's the end of your race weekend. So hopefully, hopefully their, their luck turns around because I think we all want to see a Red Bull and a Ferrari battling for a race win every single weekend. And hopefully we yeah. can throw a, a Mercedes into the mix at some point as well when they start bringing some upgrades. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder whether or not uh, Red Bull just got like a, a batch of parts that were manufactured by John Doe on a Friday afternoon totally. on a long weekend or something. He'd mentally checked out a couple hours. And he's just kind of going through the motions there and they just got, <laughs> got a oh, bad geez. box of parts. Okay, yeah, last totally. question. And this comes from, and Ben, I, I sincerely apologize because I'm going to mispronounce your last name, but Ben Gargett, 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 I'll go with Gargett. Ben just listen to this week's pod and the discussion about tire warmers and lower temps this year versus potential to remove them altogether. You talked about the driver impact. And I think that was you, Mr. Daly. You talked about yep. the driver impact and skill needed to heat the tires. What about the pitting tactics? Surely if more time is needed on track to get tires to optimal temperature, this would serve to discourage pit stops and potentially change race strategy. Interested in your thoughts. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, kind of going back, because we, we tossed this one around, I think it was last week or the week before, and where we kind of landed on it was that uh, I don't want to see them 
like completely remove the tire warmers if it comes down to like a too much of a safety issue. Like if they're they're needed to keep them at a at, at a minimal temperature that it doesn't take them too like you know several laps to get them up to that. Uh, that, that optimal temperature range and also put them in a, in a, in a situation where there's a, just a lack of grip, especially on some of these corners that have like very high speed corners and they could, you know, there's all those opportunities where they could go off the track and have an accident. So you obviously don't want to see that happen at any time ever. Right. Um, but again, I mean, I want to see the skill of the driver manage managing all aspects of the cars right and the even the tires themselves i mean these are supposed to be the 20 best drivers on the face of the planet so they should have the skills to manage all of these subtleties that mere mortals like you or i would never be able to manage well number one if we could squeeze our oversized bodies into one of these formula one cockpits uh, to begin with but just all these different things like um, you know the differential the all the different things, the, the, the you know, the, you know, ma- managing the battery. And then you throw this thing on, on, onto it as, uh, as well. But I think where it really comes down to is where do they go as a sport, right? Because they put this, uh, the, this, uh, rule into place that they have to run two compounds of tire throughout over the course of the race. I mean, if they put it out there, it's just like, well, you don't have to, uh, that, uh, you know, you, you can run on a single set of tires if you want to, then that's fine. And then, you know, it's that that's really where it where, where it's at. But I guess the the other potential change it would be is that if you know it's going to take you X number of laps to find that sweet spot for the temperature change, it's just like, well, maybe now I'm not thinking about pitting on lap 15. Maybe I'm pitting when I know that I've got this delta between myself and the car before or in front of me or behind me. And where am I going to feed back into the race order after that pit stop? So it kind of let and lends another kind of layer to that. I mean, I know that they're doing that already, but maybe it just becomes more nuanced and becomes even more of um, an advanced kind of uh, calculation when it comes to the strategy. If you just know it's going to take you even more time on the trap to uh, track to bring those tires up to uh, temperature, right? I think you, you summarized it pretty well that ultimately the only thing that this is really going to change is the calculus about when you bring somebody into pit, knowing that if I bring yep. somebody in and I'm vying for a certain position on the track, I just have to account for the fact that my first lap won't be as fast as it may have been in 2021 or 2020 or 2019. Yep. I just need to account for the fact that that lap might be a couple of seconds slower and the subsequent lap might be a second slower and the lap after that might be five tenths slower simply because it's going to take a little bit more time to get those tires up to temperature. The one thing that I would reinforce is this entire concept of pitting is purely artificial. If the FIA and Formula One went to Pirelli and said, hey, we need you to develop a compound that can last an entire race successfully, Pirelli will do that. It's just that they go to they go to Pirelli and they have designs on specific tires whose performance degrades at a catastrophic rate after a certain number of laps that force pitting. And I think pitting is an exciting part of the sport. I mean, when do you not pay attention when Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen comes in? Everybody's watching because anything can happen in a pit stop and races are often lost because of a bad pit stop. Let's not forget yep. what happened to, let's not forget what happened to Bottas at Monaco last year. There was a tragedy right, in the pit exactly. box and his race was yep. lost. So I think having that extra bit of strategy adds some 
excitement to the race and it's artificial, but I'm okay with that. But, uh, but I, I'm still okay with the idea of a tire blanket. I, I do agree that too many driver aids make the sport a little bit robotic and it takes the human element out of it, but I I've become conditioned to tire blankets and I see, I see how useful they are from a health and safety perspectives, just because the drivers can get out there and get up to stop speed right away. But I can also be swayed by the argument, which is, Hey, a driver shouldn't necessarily have that aid and they should be skilled enough that they can regulate the tire temperature to get it up to optimum operating temperature. And the reality is it's not like they're running around the track on tire coolers and tire warmers the rest of the time to keep them, you know, outside of those first couple of laps, when they come onto the grid or at the start of a race, they're the ones that are regulating the temperature in those tires by breaking and where they're turning into certain corners and things yep. like that. So I like tire blankets. I, I, I'm, I'm also cool with the direction that we're heading, which is to de-emphasize the use of tire blankets. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, like the point that you raised that, you know, the, the compounds are designed to deteriorate after a certain amount of time, right? I mean, it, it seems almost absurd if you or I to go down to the tire shop to buy new Pirellis for our road cars that we know that after 5,000 miles, the performance is just going to fall off of a cliff. You know, I mean, it just, uh, yeah. it, it seems a little bit absurd when you look at it from that way, because I mean, obviously for a road car, that would just be dangerous to the extreme. So it seems kind of a little, a little bit, um, a little bit strange that they would uh, throw it in there as uh, an artificial uh, measure in, in motor racing, especially at the level totally. of Formula One. But it, it is what it is. And I guess it uh, it does throw that, like you say, that level of unpredictability in it. And poor old Valtteri, that was just unfortunate the way that 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 wheel nut just got shredded because if you go back and see the video of that at Monaco last year, just all the metal shavings just flying in the air there and how they literally had to deconstruct that whole part of the car and the suspension, the wheel to get this thing off of the, uh, off of the, uh, the, the, the wheel nut off after they took it back to the factory is just crazy. It's just, uh, it was amazing and just bad luck for poor old Valtteri Bottas. But anyways, well, my friend, anything else uh, for tonight? You're you're shaking we, your head. I'm I'm exhausted. I appreciate everyone bearing with me today. Hopefully, hopefully, the reason I'm so tired will bear fruit over the next couple of weeks as you get to hear that Magnus interview and you get to hear that Megan interview. I think they both did a fantastic job. Other than that, you know, I'm going to go to bed and in a couple hours, I'm going to get up. I'm going to look at the results of free practice one, and I'm going to get ready to watch qualifying because qualifying is 8 p.m. or 8 a.m. Pacific time for us tomorrow. So I'm going to be watching it with my first Diet Coke of the morning while I should probably be checking my, my email. Yeah. Oh, before we go, I just want to read, uh, this is a good one here from Connie in the live chat. And uh, she had to say, tire covers give four folks jobs. If they had a union, there would be no way they would let the tire covers go. I love it. Good. (laughs) Well said, Connie. That's brilliant. Anyways, uh, on that note, I can't top that, you know, Connie wins uh, for for tonight. That's uh, brilliant. So it's time to to get out while the going is good, my friend. So thank you all for for joining in tonight. Uh, Thank you for all of you, those who've uh, listened to the podcast. If you uh, want to get in touch with us, best way to do so is on Twitter at ScooterAF1Pod. You can also send us an email at ScooterAF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy the race. Enjoy the sprint. Enjoy qualifying. We'll be back on Sunday night to recap all the action. So until then, have a great weekend and we'll see you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.